Judges 7, starting in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the men of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And then in verse 16, And Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, For the Lord, and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah at Tabith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, the prayer that we have just sung is a prayer that you call us to pray. You are the God who delights to speak words of grace and truth to your children. And so as we make this request, we can be confident that you will answer. And so we look expectantly now to this time. Would you come in the power of your spirit and speak that word that each of us needs to hear from your lips this morning. We pray in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. 
I have a question for you as we get going here, and it's, it's not a rhetorical question, so hands up, don't leave me hanging up here, okay? Um, when you were a wee, when you were a wee boy or a wee girl, who was it that you idolized? Who was it that you really wanted to be when you grew up? Maybe it was a, a sports star, or perhaps it was like someone in your family, like a really cool uncle, or you know, who, when you were a wee, who was it that you wanted to, to grow up and, and become? Yes. Audrey Hepburn. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. Ernest Shackleton. Yeah. Famous explorer. Love it. Good work. Yeah. Oh, Christian mother. Yeah. Good. Good. Others? Yeah. An older sister. Okay. Anything else? Normally, I've got to tell you, normally as the day goes on, the congregation's more responsive, but 8.30 and 10 are beating you today, you know? Yeah. Connor McPeak, who you had one? Messi. Messi, okay, great soccer player. That's good, I like it. Nancy? Okay, good, good. All sorts of, all sorts of options of people that we idolized as we grew up. Now, for me, um, I'm sorry, you know, this educated service coming up with all these, you know, famous people and authors and explorers and all the rest. Mine was Batman, okay? <laughs> and um, I had thought this through, you know, as a wee boy, I used to get up early on Saturday mornings and, and watch cartoons and familiar with, you know, all the superheroes and Spider-Man and Superman and Batman, but Batman was my choice. And the reason being was, you know, Batman doesn't actually have any superpowers, which means you could be him, okay? It's not like Spider-Man, you know, you're not going to get bitten by some spider and it's kind of hard to be Superman and come from another planet. But Batman, you could be. All you need is to be a billionaire, right? And uh, when I was wee, I thought, details, you know, logistics. We'll, we'll cover that, you know? Uh, there was something about, about Batman that just kind of caught my imagination, caught my attention. Now, it's funny, in contrast to those folks that we idolized as, as we grew up, these great figures, these great heroes, these superheroes, perhaps, whenever we come across people in the Bible, they're never that impressive. And Gideon this morning is exactly the same. No Israelite child ever said growing up, I, I want to become Gideon. Why? Because Gideon isn't so much like Batman as he is like the Wizard of Oz. Okay, remember the great and terrible Oz thundering might and power and then a, a wee dog pulls back the curtain and there's a middle-aged, overweight, sweating man trying to keep on top of everything? Right? That's more Gideon's story. It's not a story of great heroism. It's a story of, of weakness. And in chapter 6 of Judges, which we didn't read this morning, we really get the curtain pulled back on Gideon's story, and we are shown his weakness in three very specific ways. First of all, in verse 15 of chapter 6, we're shown that he was a man without any particular standing, without any particular status. The Lord appears to him and gives him this great task of saving Israel, and Gideon replies, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's saying, God, I understand you've given me this task to do, but I don't think you realize who you've given it to. First, I'm from Manasseh. I'm from a really sort of disregarded and unimportant tribe. Secondly, my clan is the weakest in this unimportant, disregarded tribe. And third, look, I am the least in my father's house. So I'm the least impressive person in the least impressive family in the least impressive tribe. Why would you call 
me to come and be Israel's saviour. Understand that Gideon is not the kind of guy, no one dropped his name at a party. Nobody knew who he was. He had no standing, he had no significance, he had nothing that was that impressive about him. Second way we see his weakness in in chapter 6 comes in verse 27, where we see that not only did he lack status or standing, but he was also a little bit of a people pleaser. He finally screws up the courage to do what the Lord wanted him to do, tear down the idol of Baal and build a new altar to the Lord. But he decides that, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it at a time when no one else will see me. Look at verse 27. Because he was afraid of who? His family and the men of the town. Because he was too afraid of them to do it by day, he did it by night. So even in his obedience, he's concerned about what other people will think of him. He's concerned about, you know, my family will just think I'm a bit weird if I follow the Lord like this. Like my colleagues will just find it kind of awkward if, 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 they, if they know that I'm the, one, I'm the one who did this. I'm really concerned about, about how other people are, are going to perceive me when I do this thing. So we understand that he wasn't a man of great standing or status, but he also isn't a man of great courage or strength. He's beholden to the opinion of others, nervous about what other people will think. Thirdly, we see his weakness unveiled in this chapter, uh, really throughout it, but particularly in verses 36 through 40, where we see that he's a man who is insecure and endlessly in need of reassurance. Think about it. The Lord has appeared to him and has said, "Um, Gideon, got a job for you. Go get this done. And by the way, I will be with you, the Lord says. And I will give you peace. And success in this endeavor is dependent upon my strength. So so go. And yet again and again and again, Gideon needs confirmation. He needs reassurance. He needs some certainty from the Lord that these things will in fact happen as the Lord has laid it out. We see this numerous times. And then most of all in verses 36 through 40 where uh, he gives the Lord this test, this uh, test of, of the fleece. And if the Lord will answer in the way that confirms his presence with him, then maybe then Gideon will be brave enough to do what the Lord has asked him to do. And so he's not just a man who lacks standing or status, not just a man who lacks strength or courage. He's also a man who lacks at this point any sense of great faith. So it's not just that, okay, the world, he wasn't impressive in the world's eyes. He wasn't impressive in the church's eyes either. He's a man who from beginning to end is... It's weak. Now, of course, as I worked my way through this this week, um, I found I found I could relate to it, and maybe you can too. Have you ever had that feeling of being nervous that you know you're a wee dog away from the curtain being pulled back on your life, and everyone realizing some of your weaknesses? Maybe it's at work. Uh, for me as a pastor, you know, one of the kind of challenges of being a pastor is that people think you know everything about the Bible, okay? And so I'm always nervous when someone, like couple, <clears throat> uh, last week on Tuesday night, someone said to me, oh, pastor, I have a theological question for you. And just that intro makes me feel insecure, okay? If you just want to make me squirm, just come and ask me that, right? Or say that to me. Because I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not going to know the answer. And then they're going to be like, he has no idea what he's doing. And I'm going to be like, I'll get my coat. Right? You know? It's just that kind of awkward feeling. And you probably have that feeling too. Maybe your boss has asked you a question that you feel you should know the answer to and you just don't. <laughs> Worse, when your children ask you a question, kids ask the most unmasking questions. Right? And you don't feel you have what it takes to answer them sufficiently. 
Perhaps it's in the office, perhaps at work, perhaps it's at home, perhaps it's even in the church, perhaps it's in your faith. Do you feel spiritually sometimes a little bit of a a fraud as a Christian, like people don't really know the, the real you? We pull the curtain back a little bit by just asking you, you know, how was your prayer life this week? How much did you pray this week? Or, you know, how did the tithing go last year? Right? Or how's personal evangelism been? And imagine, the, imagine these questions aren't rhetorical. <laughs> imagine I'm going to pick on some people. You're thinking, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> he wouldn't do that, would he? <laughs> he might do that. <laughs> He won't do that, right? But you just see that, that, that feeling just kind of starts to rise. Uh, we have a, a, an appreciation, an understanding of we can relate to weakness. Because while we want to be superheroes, we're Gideons. While we want to be Batman, <laughs> we're the Wizard of Oz. That is our experience as well as Gideons. So what's God's response to this then? How does God interact with Gideon in his weakness? We're going to see that he does two things. And the first one is a little surprising to me because he comes to Gideon in his weakness and makes him weaker. Comes to Gideon in his weakness only to make him weaker. How does he do this? In two phases. He takes the great army that Gideon has to to tackle the Midianites. And then in verse 3, he comes to them and says, Therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. This great army you have to tackle this foe, if anyone in this army isn't up for this challenge, is afraid of this fight, go, go ahead and send them home. Why does he do this? It's actually a provision in the Mosaic Law. If you flick back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20, you'll see that the title of that chapter is Laws Concerning Warfare. And in verse 8 we read, the officer shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house. Why? Lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So this is a, a, a military strategy. Now, I don't know from first-hand experience, many of you do, though, that, that cowardice, cowardice is, is infectious. And that if you're going into war, if you're going into battle, you need to know that the people beside you are not going to take a step back. You need to know that they're going to stand right there with you, that you're going to have their back and they're going to have yours, and you're going to be in this no matter what comes when you engage with the enemy. And so this was a fairly common military tactic. Still, we can imagine Gideon standing there, and if you look briefly at verse 12, we read that the Midian army were like locusts, and their camels were without number, like the sand on the seashore. So here's Gideon standing, and he's looking out at this vast army that he's got to attack, and just so vast that it can't be numbered, can't be counted. And the Lord appears and says, hey, you've got too many guys. We're going to send, you know, the scary cats home. And Gideon thinks, well, okay, you know, I know of this practice, I know of this procedure, we do want all the men uh, who, are, who are afraid to go because we want to make sure we've got a brave crew of fighting men. And I have 32,000 of them, so if I lose a couple, it won't be so bad. Right? What happens? Look, 22,000 of the people returned. He's standing there, and you know, a couple get up and start to walk away, and then a couple more, and then hordes and hordes more until two-thirds of his army desert him, and he's left there with 10,000. 
He's looking out at the locusts and he's looking out uh, at the army that's like the locusts and looking out at the, the camels that are like the sand and the seashore and his army's been reduced by two-thirds. And then what happens? The Lord shows up and says, huh, the people, still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. They go on down to the water and the Lord whittles the size of the army down in this second phase. He says, have the people drink and those who uh, uh, lap the water like a dog scooping down and putting it into their lips, put them in one group. And then anyone else who kneels down to take a drink, put them into another group. And so Gideon is left with 300 dog lappers and uh, nearly 10,000 of his other crew. And then the Lord says, yes, those 300, they're you guys. They're they're the ones that I want you to go into battle with. What's Gideon thinking? He's shocked. He's confused. He doesn't understand how this is a good battle plan. His army has been reduced from 32,000 to 300. It's been a 99% reduction. He's going to battle with the 1%. He doesn't feel equipped for the task that the Lord has for him. To do. And we can only imagine that. We can only imagine going into work tomorrow morning and finding that 99% of your clients have left. You can only imagine going into the classroom and finding that 99% of your students have left. Some teachers are like, please Lord, you know. <laughs> imagine checking your bank account, thinking there's $100 there and there's one. You know? We know what it's like to, to be in Gideon's shoes, to not be sure we have what it takes to fulfill the task that has been put before us. We're a weak people. Now, in a sense, the real question isn't, you know, so the Lord interacts with with Gideon's weakness by waking him weaker. The real question isn't how he did that. The real question is why? why? Why would the Lord do that? Important to note that this second phase wasn't a military strategy. Taking the army from 10,000 down to 300 wasn't part of some, some military expertise. Some of the commentators will do some gymnastics to try and paint it that way, but that's really missing the point that's given to us in verse 2. Look at it there. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest, here's the reason, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The Lord is whittling down this army so that the Israelites won't boast in their own strength when he gives them victory. Why does he not want them to boast? Not, not because he's insecure. It's not because God is, you know, like, like that petty colleague who has to point out, well, that was my idea. You know, remember, you know, as we sit here on this nice Sunday morning, remember the immense gulf that exists between God and us. He is not threatened by us. It's like a father being worried that his two-year-old is going to overpower him as they wrestle. It's not that God is insecure. It's not that he is afraid of the people. It's that he wants to give them... It's like a reality check. He wants them to see their dependence upon him. His whittling down of the army is an invitation for them to rely upon him because he knows that we're just a funny group of people on one hand we just said weak and insecure and yet on the other hand we're a people who love to boast 
It's a very strange combination. We are, uh, you know, both weak and prideful uh, at the same time. And so uh, have this tendency to, to take credit for things when credit belongs to the Lord. A great example of this comes from me last Tuesday night when that guy said to me, Pastor, I have a theological question for you. What, insecurity, heart sinks. I'm not going to know what to say to this guy. Curtain is being pulled. Okay? He asked me the question, and it was a question I'd written a paper on in seminary. Okay? <laughs> Back over here. right? Well, if you consider this question from these four angles and blah, 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 you'll think that blah, 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 and then you'll see that I actually do know everything about the Bible. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's like, how did, I, how did that just happen? You know? Like, how did I get from there to there so quickly? It's magic, right? It's the magic of sin. <laughs> it's the magic of boasting. It's alive and well in our hearts. And listen, DC friends, we're the best in the nation. Okay? We're the best in the nation. Sometimes it's boasting about work. Whether it's the achievements or, or, or in our turn, there's just this great tendency to boast over busyness. You know? How are you doing? Doing well, but really busy. Things going okay? Yeah, yeah, just really busy. Why? Because I'm important enough to be busy all the time. Right? That's the message we're sending. Sometimes it's not at work. Sometimes it's in our homes. Ah, oh, don't you love, and by love I mean hate, how we boast over our kids? You know? It starts when they're like, yay high. And we're like, you know, they really, they, my one-year-old they, has a lot of words. They can really say more than the average one-year-old can say. And my son, you should see him throw a ball. It's great. It's really good hand-eye eye coordination. Here's the thing. Understand. If all of our kids are above average, <laughs> what does that make them? <laughs> average, right? <laughs> And instead of just like celebrating them and being delighted as we rightly should be with them, we kind of boast in what they might or might not become so that we'll sort of feel better about ourselves. Boasting in the workplace, boasting in our homes, boasting just in the culture at large, whether it's our name-dropping town, whether it's the glories of Facebook, whether it's now the, the humble brag, you know, that our, our, our culture is just full of self-aggrandizement and so sometimes sometimes God will use hard experiences to give us that reality check to, to call us back into reality to see things as they really are to recognize our dependence upon him and in so doing invite us into relationship with him invite us to rely upon him and so we don't get into that school or we don't get that promotion and we remember God is the one who is sovereign over these things. We're anxious or we're fearful or we're worried and God reminds us, you know, I'm the one that's in control. That project at work goes terribly and we find ourselves all wrapped up and caught up in it and we remember, oh, my identity is not meant to be in that. The Lord uses these hard things to give us a reality check, reminding us of our weakness, that we might depend upon him, that we might go back into our relationship with him where we rely upon him. First thing God does in response to Gideon's weakness, make him weaker. Second thing God does, and now in verses 16 and following, is as the people see their dependence upon him, as they understand that they need to rely upon the Lord, having made them weaker in the first case, he now secondly gives them victory. 
Having made them weaker, he now gives them victory. Look at verse 16. Here we see Gideon handing out supplies. He divides the army into 300 men into three companies and puts trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. I love this scene. So we've got 300 men who are like battle-ready, hardened, big, burly, fighting Israelite guys. Okay? And Gideon comes up and he says, Supplies are here. Have a trumpet. <laughs> okay? And this big, burly guy is going to like... Okay. And then he's like, I have more. Have a jar with a flashlight in it. Okay? And this big burly guy is kind of like standing there, kind of looking at his buddies, kind of like, you know, what's the plan here? Okay? Verse 17, Gideon has a plan. Do not fear. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And the guys are like, yeah, we'll look at you and we'll do likewise. And then it says, when I come to the outskirts of the, of the camp, do as I do. And they're like, yeah, when we get there, we're going to do, do what you do. Tell us what's the plan for victory here. When I blow the trumpets, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And our burly men are all standing there waiting for the rest of the plan. Okay? And then we'll run in and like just destroy them all. You know? No. Just period. And so they're standing there with Torch and his jar. And he's thinking... We're going to conquer them by playing musical instruments. <laughs> this is the worst plan ever. This is maybe worse than that plan we had at Jericho. <laughs> What's the point? Again, the commentators sometimes will get into these gymnastics to try and show how this was a good plan, and it really misses the point that this was a terrible plan. To highlight, to demonstrate, to make abundantly clear to absolutely everyone that God had given them the victory. Think about it. You know, in our weakness we have this tendency to boast. You know these guys didn't boast about this. You know, years later, they're kind of standing at the bar and like, hey, remember that time we played the trumpet? That was was pretty sweet. (laughs) You know? (laughs) No, all they could have said is, remember... Do you remember what God did there? Do you remember how the Lord delivered us? Victory coming through and their very weakness. And that takes us back to the point that we've been hitting on again and again and really wanted to reinforce this morning as a key theme for us in this culture particularly that God is the God who wins victory through our weakness, not in spite of it. The God who wins victory through our weakness, not in spite of it. You you understand that if the Israelites had depended upon their strength, of the 300, the 10,000, even the 32,000, what would have happened when they'd gone out to fight the Midianites? They'd have been absolutely slaughtered. And yet, because under Gideon's leadership, they were made weaker still. Through that very weakness, the Lord brought victory. They go into the camp. The Lord causes confusion. The Midianites turn on each other and victory ensues through their weakness, not in spite of it. Two quick points as we close. First of all, this principle that God works victory through weakness, not in spite of it, is absolutely essential if you want to become a Christian. To to, to be a believer in Jesus, 
to have salvation in his name, you have to wrestle with, accept, come to terms with the reality that God is going to save you through your weakness, not, not in spite of it. It's very interesting, isn't it, that when you look at Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, he is the most holy, righteous, perfect, blameless man that has ever been. And yet, who is it that's drawn to him? It's prostitutes, the outcasts, the lepers, the marginalized, the misfits. Why? Because, one preacher says, um, Because Jesus isn't just full of truth, he's also full of grace. And so people aware of their need approach him. Who is it that's repelled by Jesus? It's the educated. It's the powerful. It's the strong. And so the word of God challenges us and challenges you this morning that if you think you've got it all together, if you're depending on your own strength, if you think that at the end of time there'll be uh, cosmic scales and you'll have done enough to deserve your place in heaven, you are wrong. And no one, none of us have. None of us ever will. We become Christians. We enter into a relationship with Jesus when we realize our weakness, when we realize our brokenness, when we realize our need of grace from his hand. And the second we realize all of that, we receive it full, we receive it free. Second, finally, this principle that the victory is won through weakness, not in spite of it. It's essential for becoming a Christian, but it's also essential for growing as a Christian. Uh, we understand, right, that, that our testimony, believers in Jesus, I'm McLean Presbyterian, our testimony is not, um, you know, I used to be weak, but Jesus saved me, and now I'm super strong. I used to be a mess, but Jesus saved me, and now I've got it all together, right? Um, that is not our story. And we need an awareness of that if we're to grow in the Christian faith, if we're to go, grow and become more Christ-like. Why? A couple quick examples. First of all, acknowledging our weakness um, frees us from the self-absorbed pressure of pretending you do have it all together. If, if you have a, a hard time showing that you're weak, if you have a hard time admitting that you're broken, admitting that you're struggling, um, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to keep up that facade, to, to, to you know, really keep up appearances. Whereas what we're actually called to do is be freed from that self-absorbed spiral, be okay with the fact that, yeah, we don't have everything together, lift our eyes to the horizon and see what else is going on out there. Sin is very um, insular. It's very self-absorbed. Being okay with the fact that you're broken enables you to lift your eyes to the horizon. Secondly, uh, perhaps on the, on the other side of that coin, um, being okay with your weakness frees you from that insecurity that leads you to make excuses. Let me explain what I mean. Um, we, say we need a fourth grade teacher in Sunday school, okay? And you say, I've never done that before. Um, I don't really know much about the Bible. Uh, I don't really feel like I'd, I'd be a good teacher. I, I just, I really don't think I can help you. Okay? And we say, well, great. Because it sounds, you might, in that case, you might be qualified. Right? Because if we were depending upon your strength for this, you definitely couldn't do it. But if what you're telling me is that you're weak and you're going to need to rely on God, I want you in my fourth grade class. Right? 
You see how our, our insecurity, not being okay with weakness, leads us to make mistakes that prevents us from diving in and growing as Christians. So this is not the perfect church. We don't have any of the perfect volunteers. And because of that, we might just achieve something for the kingdom. That God is the God who is pleased to work through our weakness. Those are just two examples stimulate further discussion, many more that we could, could come up with. As we close, let's go back to the Wizard of Oz. Um, one of the things I love about that story is that at the end, Dorothy realizes that she always had the power to make it home. Isn't that interesting? You know, she goes on this big epic journey and this great epic adventure and, uh, you know, they, they run around and they hustle and they harry and they're always trying to get home and then she finds out at the end that, oh, I always had the power to get home. Everything I needed was already here. And the great joy for, for us as Christians is that everything we need, not just to make it home, but to live here in time, in our weakness and in God's strength, is, is already here. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the way in which you give us story, for the way in which you give us historical accounts that teach us so much about uh, you and about how you deal with us. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are a God for the weak, and that you are a God who comes to those who are in need, because that, that's people like us. And so we come this morning recognizing uh, that you, you offer forgiveness and grace and life and, and, and strength even uh, to those who will but depend on you. So thank you for, for this truth. Thank you for this gospel. Would we become a people who are more and more okay with our weakness, who boast less and less in false strength, and who rely wholeheartedly upon you and your goodness toward us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.